This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching to the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're in chapter 11. Not everyone has heard about Jesus Christ. It's why we are called to share the gospel with those around us, and it's why we send missionaries around the world to preach the good news of salvation to every people, nation, and tongue. But everyone who has heard of Jesus has responded in some way. Today, we'll learn about three responses to Jesus, ranging from fury to faith. And we'll hear once again that there's only one way to get to heaven. It matters because it will determine where you spend eternity. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. Let's listen to his words here. Verses 16 through 24 of the 11th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus says, But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children and say, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Strong words here. By this time in the narrative, some people have responded in faith to Jesus Christ, but most people at this time have rejected him and his messages and his miracles. We remember the scribes and Pharisees by the end of last chapter, they're saying, well, he has a demon. He's doing this by the power of Beelzebub, the king of demons. And the pig farmers of chapter 8 who said to Jesus, get out of here. We don't want you here. So in this particular passage that we just read, the text features three responses from people that trigger a rebuke from Christ. So let's go through them, those three responses, again, so that we will do everything we can to avoid those responses, knowing that we have a natural tendency already to be hostile to God because the flesh wars against the spirit. So the first one is a rebellious heart, verses 16 through 17. And I'll explain this little parable that Jesus gives here. Now, he's addressing the crowds from the previous scene. You will remember those crowds. And he starts with a technique very common in his day, is to utter that question, that rhetorical question that doesn't really require an answer. It's just a way to introduce, to preface a parable. And he says, to us shall I compare this generation? So he expresses then his frustration with people's misunderstanding of God's redemptive plan. And that misunderstanding was very clear when the disciples of John asked Jesus, wait a minute, I thought you were going to start axing people because the axe is laid at the root of the tree. And then based on that and the rejection of the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus says, oh, to what shall I compare this generation? Then he goes on to offer this parable. 
But we need to know that the confusion was not an intellectual problem. It was a heart problem. The gospel is not hard to understand. The claims of the gospel are hard to accept. Why? Because they crush human pride. And that was the problem with the scribes and Pharisees. So he says, the reason you don't understand the gospel or God's redemptive plan, the fact that the king of kings is here, Messiah is here in his first coming, to die in the place of sinners, the reason you don't understand this, it's not because you're slow to understand. You are slow to believe. It's a hard problem, not an intellectual problem. They had plenty of evidence to conclude the Messiah came and brought salvation, proving without a doubt his divine nature. That is why later on in this particular passage, he said some of those cities, if the miracles that you've witnessed had been done in some of those pagan places, Gentile places, they would have repented. But let me talk to you about that privilege that that generation had. According to Luke, a man by the name of Simeon had the right perspective. In Luke 2 verses 28 to 32, he says this. He took baby Jesus in his arms and he said this. Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, in a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. You see, church, that should have been the perspective of every Jew in that generation because the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah had come and inaugurated the Messianic age, the first coming of Christ. And church, you, you will remember this. We just read that the scribes and Pharisees refused to acknowledge that they needed to repent from anything. They refused to say, I don't need to repent. I am religious enough because I keep my version of the Old Testament law. Remember the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus kept saying, you heard what it was said, but I say to you. He's not correcting the Old Testament. He's correcting people's misunderstanding of the Old Testament. But we know that the law doesn't save anybody. Even if they were able to keep the law. And remember, they were only keeping the outward appearance of the law. They didn't stick a knife in anybody's back, but they murdered them by hating them. They didn't commit adultery by engaging in the act, but they committed adultery in the heart. So the law doesn't put anybody in the right relationship with God. It serves to remind people that we need a Savior. That is the purpose of the law. When you read all of the requirements of the law, you say, wait a minute, I don't measure up. I need a Savior. I need a substitute. I need someone who keeps the law and will put me in a right relationship with the Father. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. But look at verse 16. By offering this short parable... Christ confronts people's rebellious heart. And then again, the people of that time would have understood exactly what was going on. Here's how. People who reject Christ, the people who say, I don't need him. I don't need a savior. I don't need a redeemer. I'm good on my own. I can make it to heaven. I am a good person. People who reject Jesus live in a make-believe world, just like children. In this analogy, one group of children wants to play a game. You see? They're trying to reenact the activities of grown-up. So they stage a wedding feast represented by the flute and the expectation of dancing and also a funeral represented by the dirge and the expectation of mourning. That is what's going on in this little parable. Jesus is referring to children who are pretending to be adults by playing a game. And we understand that perfectly. Our children, when they were little, pretended to be adults, right? They wear mom's shoes. They put dad's wallet in the pocket and they pretend to be driving. That's what children do. So that's what Jesus is talking about here. But the other group of children, remember, there's one group of children wanting to play and the other group of children who they invite to play, but they say, no, we don't want to play. The other group of children refuses to play according to the rules. Because the first group of children said, well, we're pretending that we're in a wedding feast here. We're playing the flute and everything, but you don't want to play. 
Notice the frustration in the voice of those fictitious children that Jesus is quoting. These second group of children represent the rebellious heart of people who refuse to come to Christ through the narrow gate. By grace, through faith, according to God's rules, they refuse to be in the game. They refuse to play the game according to the rules that God put forth. The fictitious children then symbolize people from every generation who claim they don't need to play the game. They decline God's rules for life because they think they have a better plan. They don't think they need Christ. So by their own standards, they are good people. And tragically, they remain in their state of rebellion and they will never experience the joy of playing the game, quote-unquote. They will spend eternity wishing they had accepted the invitation from the first group of children. Again, in that parable here. By the way, the fictitious group of children who invite the others symbolize what we do, right? We are the children inviting people to come to Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 10, verse 7. And that confirms all of that. Why? Because Jesus Christ is sending his disciples to invite people to come to the kingdom. So we are the children who are inviting people to be a part of the kingdom. The problem is many people don't want to play the game. Many people don't want to join the kingdom or they think they can make it to the kingdom according to their own efforts. But remember, Christ already clarified that you have to enter through the narrow gate. It is by grace through faith. Your works accomplish nothing of salvific value. Now, in the immediate context, the group of children who refuse to play represents the Pharisees. They rejected the message of both John and the message of Jesus, which we'll know are identical. But I want you to know, church, that a rebellious heart is not the exclusive domain of unbelievers. Unfortunately, born-again believers demonstrate rebellion when every time we refuse to play by God's rules, to borrow the illustration from the children's play here. When we refuse to live life by God's rules, we are demonstrating a rebellious heart, and we know that that frustrates Christ. For example, we know very clearly that the standard for marriage demands abstinence while single and faithfulness when married. The problem is sometimes believers reject those standards and decide to play by the rules of this generation, who has something completely different in mind, which encourages people to sleep around and delay marriage as long as possible in order to sow your wild oats. Now, if we want to honor Christ, if we want to honor Jesus, we respond to Him in obedience, since we have already responded to Him in saving faith. We don't want to be like those children who don't want to play according to God's rules. We want to be in the game, and we want to honor the one who invented the game. So... That's the first inadequate response to Christ that he is confronting here in a form of a very creative rebuke, divinely inspired, of course. But the second inadequate response to Christ, according to the text, is a critical spirit, verses 18 through 19. Now, again, Jesus in those verses borrows the imagery of a wedding and a funeral. So that is what the children are doing in their play. They're, they're pretending to be in a wedding and in a funeral. Jesus borrows that imagery now to symbolize his ministry and the ministry of John. Because that's what he does in verse 18. He mentions John the Baptist and he mentions himself. Now, although they preach the same message, they use completely opposite methodologies. John the baptizer, while he focused on judgment, lived like an Old Testament prophet. And Jesus even refers to the vow that the angel announced to John's parents. Let me read that to you. Luke 1 verses 13 through 15. The angel said, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. 
for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. So that is the life of John, and we see that very clearly. In fact, Jesus Christ says, well, John came neither drinking or eating, and then you say he has a demon. So Jesus Christ is referring to the very austere life that John would live and said, we have different methodologies, the same message, you rejected both of us. You criticized both of us. That is what Jesus is saying here. The responses described by Christ here in verse 18 are typical of people who uh, want nothing to do with him or his people. What usually starts as a passive rejection over time turns into a slanderous accusation about Christ and his people. They don't want to hear the message of salvation. It happened to Jesus. It happened to his forerunner also. In church, why would we expect to be treated any differently? When Jesus says, if they malign the head of the house, if they're saying, I have a demon, why would we think that people would say different things about us, modern day followers of Jesus Christ, the members of his household of this, of our generation? Because you belong to Christ, church, you need to know this. Because you, just the fact that you belong to Christ, people will criticize you. Even if you don't even open your mouth, people will criticize you just because of the fact that you belong to Jesus Christ. They will second guess your motives. They will assume the worst of you, just like they did to John and Jesus here. And they will speak all kinds of evil against you behind your back just because you belong to Christ. Imagine when you open your mouth to proclaim the message of salvation. But check this out. We as believers should expect to be the object of a critical spirit, not the initiator of a critical spirit. Is that clear? We receive the criticism and the hostility because we belong to Christ, but we don't pass it forward, right? We should have a Christ-like spirit, not a critical spirit. Look at verse 19. Jesus finally addresses the rumor mill head on. He's aware of the fact that people are saying all kinds of things against John and against him. And usually those are not in front of him, obviously. That's how rumor mills are, are done, that people are not courageous enough to go talk to the people about whom they're speaking. But in verse 19, Jesus addresses the rumor mill head on. And he says, I know, I know what they say about John and about me, but the critics prefer to pass on judgment rather than to get in the game. Remember, going back to the parable that he proposed in verses 16 through 17, they don't want to play the game. They prefer to criticize. It's a lot easier to criticize the people who are in the game. I heard this. I'll never forget this illustration here. It's not a biblical illustration about the church, but it's one that we understand very well. The church or the life of believers, much like a football game or a soccer game, you have 22 people in the field who desperately need rest. And you have thousands of people in the stands who desperately need exercise. And they criticize the ones who are playing the game. So that's what's going on here. They are criticizing the ones who are in the game. But here's what infuriated the critics. And we need to understand this according to verse 19. Jesus spent time with sinners. And that infuriated religious people. He ate with them and he attended their weddings. And that was a no-no for the pharisaical, for the hypocritical mindset. They failed to see their own sin. They said, well... He eats with sinners. He's a friend of sinners. And that is saying, well, we're not sinners. And that is tragic. Church, likewise, every time you demonstrate Christ-like compassion, every time you demonstrate grace and forgiveness, you will infuriate religious people. Now, the people of that generation received a personal invitation from the majestic Savior. Tragically, many declined and prefer to insult the king and question his motives. 
Many today refuse Jesus' compassion and they adopt a view of him fed to them by this current generation. That's exactly what that generation that Jesus is confronting did. Some of those views of our generation today demote Jesus to a religious leader, to a martyr or a fraud or a fictitious character even, none of which are true, of course. And people who embrace those views of Christ live in a fantasy world. Again, let's go back to that parable that Jesus spoke about children. They live in a fantasy world, or to use a biblical term, deception, like the children of verse 17. And if you have, church, any of those wrong views of Christ, I kindly and compassionately invite you to come to reality. Because Jesus says in John 8, verse 32, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, in the real world, Jesus is not a gluttonous man. Of course not. He's a friend of sinners. Yes, they got that right. He is not a drunkard. He's a friend of sinners. Why? Because he came to seek and save that which is lost. Luke 19, verse 10. And you know what, church? He expects the same from us. If we are to imitate Christ, we are to be friends of sinners. Not to do what they do. Not to engage in some of the activities they do. But in order to shed the light of the gospel in their lives so that they can come to Christ and respond in faith not in fury. And we know that every time we befriend sinners, some of them will believe, but most of them will not. And they will criticize us for doing whatever we do. But that's a reflection on their hearts, not on ours. We need to just be faithful. And I want you to see here in the end of verse 19, Jesus finishes with a proverb, what he started with a parable. That's why he says wisdom will be vindicated by her deeds or by her children in some of your versions there. Jesus is affirming that God's redemptive plan is displayed in the ministry of John and in the ministry of Jesus. Why? Because that's the context here. He's saying the wisdom of God is on display and you have rejected. You have a rebellious heart and you have a critical spirit. But despite rebellious hearts and critical spirits, some people will respond to him in humility and faith and church We are the ones of this generation who have responded to Jesus in humility and faith. And we have not demonstrated a rebellious heart. We have not demonstrated a critical spirit, even though from time to time we do this. We resort to the flesh from time to time, right? Because it's it's the sin nature that's still in us. And I, I raise my hand. I am the first one. Or like Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. But when you look at the life of a fellow believer, church, you you are watching the vindication of divine wisdom. When you look in the mirror, you're looking at the vindication of divine wisdom because you're looking at a redeemed sinner. You're looking at someone who Jesus befriended in order to save. And again, let me remind you of what we studied last week. Consider your calling, brethren, Paul says. Look at your own life. Consider your calling that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. So when we look at our own life, we're looking at divine wisdom being vindicated in a very tangible way. Why? Because you live a life that honors God. And from time to time, you stumble just like the rest of us. And we demonstrate our rebellious heart every once in a while, a critical spirit. But there will be one day when we will be glorified that none of these things will be present in our lives. In fact, those very stumbles that we take along the way in our walk with Christ should remind us that we desire holiness, should remind us that we desire the time when sin will be no more in our hearts. But between now and then, we need to pay close attention to these things that frustrate Christ. Again, a critical spirit is not the exclusive domain of unbelievers. Tragically, 
many born-again believers think that they have the gift of criticism. (laughs) They quickly point out the flaws in their fellow believers, but they are slow to recognize their own. And church, we all do this from time to time. As a result, we assign wrong motives to people, just like that childish generation 2,000 years ago. We must guard against that, church. Let's drop the critical spirit and let's respond to Jesus in a very adequate way with a humble heart. And, And every time we're tempted to criticize anybody else, let's think, wait a minute, God saved me, the terrible sinner. Why am I criticizing my fellow believer? So speaking of which, here's the third inadequate response to Jesus in this passage. So far we looked at a rebellious heart, a critical spirit, and in verses 20 to 24, we have an unrepentant attitude. Here Jesus gets a little more specific in his rebuke. He names some of those cities that he's talking about here, the object of his reproach, and he intensifies the reproach or the ammunition. We know that because he's using the strong way to reflect or to express indignation and lament at his time. The word woe It's woe meaning, I am lamenting your response. I am indignant about your response. And you need to watch out. That's what woe means. So the people in those cities, remember, he's he's naming some of these places. Chorazin and Bethsaida, those are villages, remember, in the region of Capernaum there that had just witnessed Jesus' miracles and his ministry there. And Jesus says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, because if the miracles had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. Now, They were familiar with Tyre and Sidon, the people of that generation, because Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, and Zechariah all prophesied against those places. The people who witnessed the miracles of Christ and failed to respond in repentance will have more evidence against them than the people in those Gentile cities. That is significant. And church, our generation is in the same predicament, if not more dire predicament. And I'll tell you why. We have irrefutable and documented proof of the ministry of Christ, of the miracles of Christ. And we also have access to these warnings. And besides the miracles of Christ and the ministry of Christ, we have access to the miracles of the apostles, the book of Acts. Let's then show fruit of genuine repentance by obeying what Jesus commanded us to do. I can't think of a better way to demonstrate to our Lord how much we love Him, how much we are grateful for our salvation, than to obey what He tells us to do, to obey what He tells this generation to do. And in case we need a reminder, here it is, towards the end of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 19 through 20, Jesus says, Go! Therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And you say, wait a minute, Pastor, that is not our generation. That was the generation of the disciples. Fair perceptive. The point is, that generation was supposed to perpetuate the process until today, because otherwise none of us would have been believers. And we need to perpetuate the process as well. And also, look at what Jesus says, I am with you even to the end of the age. So church, this is our job until the end of the age. It's to make disciples of every nation by teaching them, by going to them, by baptizing them, and by teaching them to observe all that Christ has commended. That is the mission of that generation of disciples, and that is the mission of this generation of disciples. Can you think of a better way to demonstrate fruit of repentance than by obeying Him with a thankful heart? In, in expecting him to work in and through us. Now look at verses 23 and 24. Again, another very significant statement that we don't want to miss. 
Jesus pronounces judgment on the people of Capernaum. He says, because the people of Capernaum rejected Christ, they will miss heaven. And what Jesus is saying by comparing them with Sodom, he's saying this, refusal to come to Christ produces eternal condemnation. However, homosexuality, the sin of Sodom, can be forgiven. In fact, many former homosexuals have come to Christ and they will make it to the kingdom of heaven. There will be many former homosexuals in the kingdom of heaven. But you say, Pastor, I, I've never met one. Oh, there are plenty of them. Let me introduce you to some. Paul reminds us of that. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. He says this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Church, the church in Corinth was filled with former homosexuals, former adulterers, former fornicators, former idolaters. Paul says, such were some of you. In other words, here's an example of sodomites in the spiritual sense being forgiven and being now in the kingdom of heaven. However, if you refuse to come to Jesus Christ, there is no way out. That is a more serious sin because if you ultimately reject the gospel, you will not make it to heaven. If you'd like to learn more about how to accept Christ, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org for more information about our church and this media ministry. We're always looking for people just like you to join us in spreading the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.